This is Jamal Seward, Chief People Officer with St. Louis Bank in St. Louis, Missouri, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Each week I sit down with an expert to figure out what do they know about the world and how can we take their expertise to expand our understanding of how things work and really how we should interact with the world. This week, I sat down with a man named John Duckworth, who has traveled around the world and is a very, very interesting guy, but he runs a company that I think most people on first blush would think is kind of boring. He runs a title company. But when you start to dig into what is a title company, it is the people that determine who owns what. And when you think about it, The foundation of modern society is built on the concept of private property. Who owns things and how do we know when you've given up your rights to certain aspects of that ownership? John and I sat down and had a fantastic conversation and I am really excited for you to listen to this. It took us a few weeks to get this meeting on the books. We were introduced a long time ago by probably one of the most well-networked and interesting people in all of St. Louis, a man named Jared Holst. But it took John and I a few weeks to be able to get something on the calendar because John is running a very sophisticated company. So I was glad he could stop by. We're going to head to that interview in just a second, but I want to bring up two things. First, the book club. We are in full effect. Last month, we read All Quiet on the Western Front, and that was a fantastic experience. And actually, that experience introduced me to a man named Lyle Benjamin, who goes by Lyle Benjamin 4 on Twitter. Lyle is the former president of the Montana Grain Growers Association and a very interesting guy. We were able to meet and get to know one another because of the book club. And that's why I want to encourage you, if you haven't joined us yet, that you jump in on this month's book. I'll talk a little bit about that book in just a second, but really the core of what I am trying to create here, and actually it's no longer my creation alone. There are a lot of people contributing to this. What we are trying to create is a community, a place where people that have maybe similar values or similar drives but come from all over the United States and really all over the world to share their ideas, to have an experience, read a book, and then come to the book club, and we do it online, to be able to discuss, how did you think about this? What did you take away from it? And one of the things that manifests in an adult book club is that people have a lot more experiences. They have a lot more uh, worldly knowledge about what's going on and, and how they perceive that they would engage with the ideas of these books. So whereas in high school, most of the people didn't really have that many experiences and really they're mimicking what the teacher wants them to, an adult book club is a totally different thing. And by being in this book club and hearing people's different perspectives, you become curious about how they came to the conclusions that they did. And I know for one, Lyle was such an interesting guy and his take on the book was so interesting that I started interacting with him offline. And I have discovered so many fascinating facts about a guy who not only has been a grain farmer for several generations in his family, was the president of this organization with the Montana Grain Growers, but also was a police officer that knows how to engage in SWAT tactics to be able to run down drug houses. These are the kind of things and the types of people that you meet when you join a book club. 
So if you're not going to join ours, maybe get out and try and find some other community. But I really highly recommend you join ours. We're having a blast and we meet on the last Sunday of the month, which this month in the month of February means February 23rd at 730 at night. We're going to get together and we're going to talk about this book. In the meantime, as you're reading the book, you can always go on Twitter and see what are other people saying about the book? How are they engaging with it? This month is the first month, and maybe the only time this year we'll do this, we are doing a nonfiction book called The True Believer, written by Eric Hoffer. And the book I've talked about on several podcasts is about how do mass movements begin? Who joins them? Why do they join them? And uh, how do those movements end up uh, burning brighter and brighter, hotter and hotter? So I highly recommend you read the book and use the hashtag ATCF Book Club as the Crow Flies Book Club to be able to jump onto Twitter and have conversations with other people about this book. Because it is a nonfiction book, it's a little bit harder to discuss on Twitter, but I'm sure we'll have some conversations. I love this book, and it's only about, I think, 100, 150 pages. It's a pretty quick read, so if you've been a little bit nervous about some of the other more difficult books we've read, this is a good one to jump in on, and make sure you get it done by February 23rd. I know it's a short month, but uh, it's uh, not a long book, and it's something that you guys will probably find very, very interesting. So... The other thing that I wanted to mention before we go to the book club is that I have a travel schedule that is coming up that is going to be quite insane. It is an exciting time for me. There have been several organizations that have been really, really interested in some of the things that I've been talking about. And I think because they're ideas that are not being well circulated into society and they're the ones that are pushing people to think more deeply about who they are in relation to the rest of the world. And a few weeks ago, I was invited to give a talk at a place called the Land Expo. And at that talk, I was able to talk about why the organization was um, putting forward different kinds of ideas. And I talk about these concepts like the Overton window and the intransigent minority. Really, how is it that new ideas um, get pushed into society. And also, I talked about the outrage culture, the types of people that say there are some ideas that are in society that we are going to react to so strongly that we push them out of uh, society's willingness to even talk about them. So this was a talk that I gave, and it was recorded, and now it's up on YouTube. So if you're interested in the types of talks that I give, this one is um, archetypal. This is a, a quintessential example of some of the stuff that I talk about. And I had a chance to give this talk at the Land Expo because Dr. Kevin Folta had been asked to stop giving talks by his university. He had had a few people who are outraged by who he is and what he's done. And they uh, started um, hounding the university, saying he shouldn't be allowed to speak. You guys shouldn't. Uh, be proud of him. And eventually the university came to the conclusion, for whatever reason, that uh, having Kevin go out and give a lot of speeches was drawing more negative attention to them than they wanted. So they asked him to stop doing that for a while. Now, I think that that is a bad thing. I think that we want more speech rather than less. 
but it it happened that Kevin uh, needed to fulfill what they asked him to do, and so he invited me to step into his place, and it was a big honor and a big opportunity. The Land Expo is probably the most forward-leaning conference that I have ever been to, and it was a great chance for me to speak for about 45 minutes about concepts that are really important to me. So if you're interested, go check that out. You can just type in Vance Crow Land Expo and check out that talk. I'm, I'm open to your feedback and your ideas. This was the first time I'd ever actually given this talk. And so some of those ideas I'm working out on stage. I'm trying to learn myself. What is it that I actually believe? In other news, if you're interested in seeing me speak live, there are some opportunities that are coming up. Oftentimes, I'm invited by private organizations that are looking to get their company or their industry group to push their members to think about things differently. But every once in a while, I'm invited to give a talk uh, to the broader public, people that are invited. And if you live in Canada, I will be in some really interesting places all across the heartland starting on March 16th because I have been invited to do the Tech Tour Live, which is an event put on by Real Agriculture and Sean Haney. So we are going to be heading to the cities of Brandon, Regina, Lethbridge, and Red Deer during the month of March 16th. And if you're interested in seeing me live along with some other great keynote speakers and our live taping of the Real Agriculture podcast, you can go to techtourlive.com for more information and tickets. I will also be up in Alberta at the Alberta Beef Conference, and I'll be out in California to address the California Farm Bureau and many, many other places in between there. So I hope to see you guys out there. Know that I absolutely love talking with podcast listeners when I go out to give a speech uh, because you guys are the ones that know me so well. We've spending hours and hours and hours together, and I always love to have somebody come up Tell me that they're a listener and tell me why they listen. I've learned a lot from the listeners that have taken the time to come see me. So I am going to stop talking and uh, jump into the podcast. Remember that the all the the book club for this month, which is The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, is going to be discussed on Sunday, February 23rd at 7.30 p.m. And if you want to meet a really interesting guy, go check out Lyle Benjamin 4 on Twitter. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to the interview with John Duckworth. John Duckworth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vance. Great to be here. I've been looking forward to this podcast because I think what you do actually comes down to the core of civilization, which is you run a title company, which helps people, as far as I can tell, figure out who owns what. Is that right? That's breaking it down. Yeah, that's that's what we do. We help... Uh determine who has ownership rights in property and all the other different types of rights others may have in that property. Now, the first time I ever came in contact with a title company, it was when I was buying a house for the first time and I found it to be really frustrating and I was pretty angry when I found out like we're paying for somebody to tell us who owns it and how that works. Why is this an important thing? So, we have to break down property rights into what the different types of property there are. I think most people, at least in Missouri, understand that we have real property, personal property, because we pay different property taxes on those things. When you're buying a piece of personal property, like a car or a boat or even a shirt, um, those are things that they're single items that are very easy to determine who owns that. With cars and boats, we have a certificate of title that the state issues 
It's a very simple document. And they say, you have this car. This car cannot change. It's not going to change its shape. Uh, it's not going to, um, you can't loan a part of that car to another person for a specific period of time. Uh, and it's very finite type of property that at a certain point in time will cease to have any value. Real property, real estate is property that we know has long-term value. The longer you hold real estate, the more valuable it gets, generally speaking. Uh, and so what goes into real property rights is, is a lot of different individual rights, whether it's the right to live on the land, whether it's the right to mine that land, whether it's the right to cross it with a road, uh, the right to um, you, you use it as collateral for a loan. So all these different types of rights, we, in, in law school, they, they talk about it as a bundle of sticks. Each right is, a, is one stick in a bundle of sticks going into property rights. So going back to your question about buying a house and why do you have to go through a title company? Why can't, uh, why can't the county tell me who owns the property? Why can't the state just say, all right, you own this property? Well, property lines change from time to time. And it's a very complicated procedure that involves realtors, it involves lawyers, it involves surveyors, and all these different parties, somebody has to analyze it at the end of the day and say, this is who owns it. Um, I remember when we were buying this house and uh, we were going through the plat and we figure out that whoever built the fence before we got there was wrong by about a foot and a half. And it was crazy because... I was like, hey, I met the guy that's next door. We get along. What's the big deal? Like, this is not going to be a big deal. And uh, everyone that I spoke with was like, put it in writing, talk with him, make sure he agrees that that's what's going on. Why, why, why all this like formality and seriousness about this stuff? So we have a long enshrined right property right called adverse possession. Adverse possession also might be known as squatter's rights. Which effectively is saying, if you use a property exclusively and openly and notoriously for a set period of time, you can lay claim to that to the title of that property. Really? <laughs> so when you have a fence that's over the property line, and your neighbor's been cutting that grass, he's been planting flowers in it, uh, playing playing catch with the kids, he's using it. And if it's on the other side of the fence, chances are you're not using it. So he's using it exclusively. So over a period in Missouri, over a period of 10 years, if he has exclusive rights that he can then file a suit in the, in, with the circuit court and say, I own that property because I've, I've used it openly, exclusively, notoriously for the last 10 years. Does that actually happen? Absolutely. So in that case, offense, no big deal. I mean, I guess maybe it could be a big deal, but where does this actually get meted out? Where do you see this happening, this type of conflict over somebody squatting on, on property? Well, uh, most commonly, it's going to be with roads. Um, somebody's used, been using a, a road for a hundred years, and it turns out there was never any dedicated uh, or established right to use that road, whether it's a deed, whether it's an easement. That's going to be the most common situation uh, where it happens. In the city of St. Louis, however, there are entire blocks where every house is built three or four inches onto its neighbor's property. And it works that way going up and down the block. So if, if the house at you know 123 Main Street is three inches onto the house at 125 Main Street, 125 will be three inches onto the house. And that's important. This adverse possession is really important because 
if I bought 125 Main Street and this house on 123 is on my property without adverse possession, I could demand that they remove their structure from my property, which would require tearing down a house or tearing down a wall. But by having this adverse possession, right, once it's there for that long, you say it's there, it's been there. They have the rights to that property. And so are change. you are you in effect like a detective? Like what what is the role of the title company? Because from my perspective, just a guy that had barely bought any property before that point, it was like we show up, you guys go open up the Internet and you say, yep, that house is owned by that person. They can sell it to you and then that's it. So, how- so I, I think one of the easiest ways to talk about title and what we do is really to go back to it to an old um, – just an old cliche of a Western. Think of an old Western movie and there's the poker game going on and the guy's sweating. He's got his, his pocket watches in the pot and you can see he's struggling. And then all of a sudden you see that rolled up piece of parchment that says deed on it and he's thrown his deed in the pot. So if you go back to the days of the Wild West, that sort of thing happened where I pledged my property as collateral to you to give me a loan. Uh, and if there were good land records in those days, that was fine. You you could go check out the public records before you bought that property to say, wait a minute, did did so and so pledge this property as collateral? So I'm not going to give you a hundred dollars for this plot of dirt if somebody's going to show up tomorrow and say, hey, I have you know, collateral. This is my collateral. I'm going to foreclose and take the property. So that in effect, we're protecting those buyers when they're buying that property from the seller, confirming that that seller owns the property. And that has not pledged it as collateral that there are no liens on that property, meaning no debts secured by that property. Because the worst thing for you would be to buy that property and have somebody show up and say, hey, I hold a note against this property. You owe me $100 or I'm going to foreclose and you lose out on what you've got. I heard a guy talking about that one time. And so it seems like a real thing, but I've only heard it in the abstract. Is that a common thing that happens? It's not common. Uh, Title insurance, contrary to... Pretty much every other form of insurance is backward looking. <laughs> we 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 are more in the business of risk elimination rather than risk acceptance. So if you take uh, uh, car insurance, auto insurance, that is risk acceptance. There is a, a certain probability that you, when you get into the car, are going to get into an accident and cause a claim. And based on all the data we have today, they can run your social security number, look at your credit, look at your driving record, all these factors that go into it to determine what that probability is and establish a premium. And there's nothing the car insurance company can really do (laughs) to prevent that from happening. It's just a risk they take. With title insurance, we are actually covering things that have already happened but could be hidden. So when you write a contract to buy a piece of property and it goes to the title company, we begin doing research to identify those risks. We identify what those risks are, such as the fence being over the property line, such as a mortgage to ABC Mortgage, or maybe there's an unpaid mortgage from 1983 that we need to deal with. And they do go up. back that long. We a title search, a standard title search uh, for residential property will go back 45 years to see who owned it over the last 45 years in liens. But we actually go back... Uh, in St. Louis, generally, we're going to search back to about 1900 to identify other types of encumbrances, which we're going to get a little more complicated. I don't, I don't. Yeah, do it, man. I'm, I'm down. This is interesting. <laughs> all right. So, um, once we've identified all, I'm going to say on the risk elimination thing. So we've identified all these risks, and then before you get to closing, we go about 
taking care of them, eliminating those risks. So that old mortgage from 1983, we're going to track down um, what's called a release, a satisfaction of that mortgage to clear it off title. So it's no longer an issue. We're going to make sure every debt is paid on that title. And if there's uh, issues with the fence, we're going to address that before you get to closing. So we're solving the problem before it ever arises. That's our main goal. And then there's a tiny amount of risk where maybe we screw up, maybe we miss something, or maybe it's just perfectly hidden. We could never find it. So case in point of something that happened um, in, within the last couple of years and going back to how we searched title a long way back. On every piece of property, as I've talked about, there's other rights. There's there's the ownership rights. There are lien rights, the right of a, of a bank to collect its collateral uh, for a debt. But there's other encumbrances and, and things that restrict the use of the land. So there may be an easement for uh, the sewer to run under your property. There may be a right-of-way for a highway to go along the side of your property, an easement for a utility line to go overhead. And once these easement rights or, or other types of rights are established, they are perpetual. They last forever unless they are revoked by the person who is entitled to use those rights. Okay. Okay. So for that reason, we have to – we can't just stop in 1960 and say, all right, we're done because something that was enshrined in, in 1950 might come into place. In addition, there are restrictions. You buy a house in a subdivision, there are rules that govern how you can live in the, in the neighborhood, what type of – siding you put on? Can you have pets? Uh, the nature of your fence, all these different rules that affect the use of your land. So we have to identify all these and make sure that everybody's aware of what these are. Um, so here in St. Louis, uh, we closed a, a house in Webster Groves, old house as they are in Webster Groves. And we did our proper title search all the way back. We have in our chain title back to about 19, 1900. And went through closing, everything was fine. And our purchaser, as is common for, for new purchasers, starts talking to neighbors and, and going over his grand plans to, to, to how he's going to put in a pool and build a big garage and a deck, the things that all new homeowners do. We always have grand plans. And so as he's talking about putting in his pool, the neighbor said, well, you know, my sewer's running right underneath here. The buyer said, nah, no, nah, I, I had a survey, title company, it's, it's not there. Neighbor said, I, I promise you, <laughs> that's where my sewer is. And he, he alerted the title company. We went, uh-oh, we contacted MSD. And sure enough, they confirmed that their line was there. And the neighbor was able to produce a document and information on where that originated. And it originated in 1904, 1908, this document that created the sewer easement. It didn't appear in the way the title uh, records are indexed. We did our job. We searched it, but it was misindexed back in 1904. Wow! So we didn't find it, and as a result, uh, he was a, he submitted a claim to his title to the title insurance company. We are a title agent selling it on behalf of a much larger billion dollar insurance company. So submit the title claim, and now and it's in process, and ultimately he will be compensated. Because because the value of his property is not what he thought it was because he thought, hey, I'm going to be able to put a pool here. Now, what does it cost to exactly. not be able to put a That's pool called, there? Yeah, it's to- called a diminution of value. So, the title company comes in and says, all right, you paid $100,000 for this property without the easement. So, we know what the value is without the easement. Now, we know there's an easement. You can't put a pool. It's worth 80, let's say. 
And so he gets a check for $20,000. So it seems like your role has an interesting arbiter uh, concept to it, but you're really just saying, I, what exists is what I can prove exists. Is that right? Nah, we, that's, that's effectively what we're doing, but then there's the policy of title insurance to protect the things that we could not find. Okay. And, and if we make a mistake, and, and occasionally we make a mistake. And so is it is it you actually that's going through and doing this kind of mystery work, or do you have people that do that and you're running the company? Tell me a little bit about your, your business. Sure. So True Title was um, founded in 2012. We have about 48 employees today, 10 offices. Um, and the title company is really twofold. Uh, we have two departments. We have what's called the title production department, the search and examination department. And we have an escrow closing department. So I'll talk about search and exam first because that's what we're talking about. Uh, that's more like a research department. So we have employees that we call title searchers or abstractors. And their job is once they get a property, we know some, so-and-so is buying a property and wants title insurance, they begin the research process. They start with going to the tax records. Pulling up the tax records, we find the last deed for 123 Main Street. Now we know what the legal description of this property is, and we can begin doing that research. Then we we either go to a, a, a what's called a title plant, a computerized electronic index of, of public records, uh, or we might go down to the county courthouse, go to the land records, where there are actually books that record every document that's recorded in the land records. And... We do the research to find every document in the last 45 years that affects that property. And then beyond that, we do what's the, the restriction and encumbrance search going back as far as we can to find those easements and other things. Uh, so that abstractor then compiles this set of documents and it goes to a title examiner. The title examiner is now reviewing all of these documents to, to identify any potential problems. And there are a lot of problems because a lot... Real estate law can be very complicated. It's best handled by title companies and real estate attorneys, uh, but it's often handled by laymen trying to transfer property on their own. It's handled by other types of attorneys who are probably very good in their specialty. Oh, so not everybody gets a title search. No. Oh, I guess I was in the uh, – that's interesting because the people that were giving me advice were basically like there is no other way to do it. It is through this title So search. when you're buying a property, if you have a bank – Banks need title insurance. <laughs> okay, they yeah. are gonna they are gonna okay. make it happen. But what happens? It's not necessarily title insurance, but maybe maybe you're single when you buy your house and you get married. Now you want to add your wife or your spouse on title. So you might just prepare a deed yourself, record it in the land records, and put your wife in title. You may have messed that up because you don't know the different rules that go into the rules and laws that go into making a proper deed. So. Um, the the uh, the people that are doing this work are they bookworms? Are they like librarians? Are they like what type of person does really well at this job? Uh, they are introverted. We do joke we have the introvert department and the extrovert department. Our escrow <laughs> closers these are the people who are sitting down with you at the, at the closing table to get things signed up. Work with real estate agents. Work with loan officers. They're real outgoing, love people. The people doing the research. Are, are best suited their day. Their, the best part of their day is when they get to the office, they put their headphones on, they look at their computer screen, and then they don't talk to anybody the rest of the day. Wow. <laughs> and that's what they enjoy doing. Uh, in the old days, I used to say I collected um, 
liberal arts degrees because we'd get philosophy degrees, English majors, <laughs> history majors, all those types of degrees that have have that people that love to study and learn things, but maybe don't have a uh, a natural profession once they get out outside of teaching. You're a young guy. You have forty some employees in this what seems to me to be a rare field. How in the world did you get into this? So I'm one of the few people that actually considered it and went to the, went into the business. You knowing knew what about it was. this, yeah. So my background is international business. I got a degree in marketing in Spanish. I traveled all over when I was in college, and I said I'm gonna I'm gonna live this jet set lifestyle. And I know the I know the club. Yeah. My, my first job, I did get a job. I, I worked in the Czech Republic. Um, oh wow! Back in back in the year 2001, and I was. Uh, it was a small venture capital group, which sounded a lot more exciting when I took the job than when I got there and realized we were six people basically working to invest one man's money. And he was very picky and opinionated about everything. <laughs> but what I learned is uh, about myself is that I wasn't the best suited for a corporate lifestyle where I had to answer to others and where my boss might undercut me uh, in front of his boss. Um so, an international business as a as a twenty three year old generally meant that I was just working weird hours to, to make phone calls to the other side of the world, um, and living in the Czech Republic as a Czech young Republic. person. That's got to be pretty wild, uh, pretty wild time. So, yeah, as, as a young person, it was a great. <laughs> the, the lifestyle was fun. Uh, I learned what it meant to, uh, to to get three hours of sleep and and go into work the next day for the first time. Um, so it was a life changing experience, but I also learned that that was probably not the, the lifestyle that I ultimately wanted. And how, what, what prompted you to get out of there? Um, were you making good money? Was not making good money. It, it was, it was a traineeship they called it. So I was, I was making just over the cost of living, uh, and the Czech Republic <laughs> in those days, uh, was not yet on the, they're not on the Euro now, but, um, they're in the EU now. So back in those days, going over to Germany was super expensive. I made $400 a month, which was better than the national average. Uh, but $5,000 a year is not going to cut it when you cross the border into Germany and, and want to uh, go to Western Europe. So it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle at that at living there. Um, so I, I just decided, said, this isn't the right thing for me. I, I went home, did some soul searching. How long were you there? Just over a year. Okay. And so you come back home. You, you're from the St. Louis St. area? St. Louis area. And then what does the che the Czech Republic guy go go on to do next? So I, I after soul searching, said, what am I going to do? Because this international business thing is probably not right. I, uh, When you're a kid, I know. I, so I had this concept of like international business. And you're actually... Uh, ahead of where I was because I got all the way done with school thinking I'm going to do PR communications. I want to yeah. do international. And you realize when you're just out of school, no one wants you to go internet. You don't have any skills to go international. And by the time you get enough skills, oftentimes people are married and they've kind of got, got set That's up. And, uh, but I had that same kind of pull. I went the deckhand route. <laughs> instead I saw of that. Venture capital route. <laughs> yeah. So you're soul searching in St. Louis. So my dad, um, I grew up around real estate. My dad was a small developer in Jefferson County doing, uh, he, he would buy old farms and develop large lot subdivisions. So he'd throw in a road, put in the electric and maybe four, five acre lots 
and people would go buy the lot and build their own home. And, it, and my dad uh, had a pretty good living from that. So I thought eh, real estate might be the way to go to give me a lifestyle that will allow me to travel, give me that flexibility as I, as I build um, an empire of, of property. So in those days, the plan was I'm going to get a job in real estate, but eventually just start building an empire of, of real estate that I own and, and create passive income. And sales was not particularly my thing. I didn't want to become uh, go the broker route, whether it's commercial or residential. I knew that. So I looked at either a title company knowing that they have their, their fingers on the pulse of all everything that's happening. Because you consider it, every real estate closing, 99% of every real estate closing is are, are going through a title company. So you see what's going on. You see the deals. You see the value. Um, or looking at property management, which would get me in the connections I need on the commercial side. So I started exploring those paths and got a job at a title company first. And were you one of the headphone researcher guys? I and I started off typing the actually preparing the final title policies. Okay, so that's at, that's the, end, at the end of the process. I'm reviewing every aspect. The title policy person is really auditing the entire closing file to make sure everything's done properly. Typing it up and sending out the policy along with the recorded deeds and mortgages. Um, and very quickly, it clicked. I just got it. I understood title. And then I started doing the research and the examination. And I understood title. I just, it just, I got it. When you say I understood title, does that mean you understood what it is to, to own something? What, what do you mean? Um, I understood, yes, what it means to own something, what it means in terms of uh, the real estate law and the logic that follows on who has the rights to property. Um, so whether it is understanding the different types of ownership interests, uh, for instance, there are, when somebody's married, you have two types of rights. You have what's called a marital interest in the property and you have a vested interest in the property. A vested interest means your name is on the title. So when I sign a deed, uh, and, and it lists you and your wife, you guys both have a vested interest in the property. If I sign a deed just to you, Vance Crow and nobody else is listed, your wife, by virtue of the laws of the state of Missouri, has a marital interest in the property, meaning she has rights, they're not, they're hidden, but she has rights to the property. And I understood inherently, intuitively, how that how that worked uh, better than others and, and how to solve that issue. I think that that's, the, the thing that you're describing here, I will not be able to ask you the right question. So you're going to have <laughs> to figure out how to answer the thing that I'm trying to get to. But it has become more obvious to me as I've worked in the agriculture community, which, you know, they can sell their mining rights, they can sell uh, all, all sorts of things. In fact, I was talking to a land trust group that said you can now sell the um, the right to do to develop it. So you can only keep it as farmland. I really didn't understand that there's all these different types of ownership. Is this a new phenomena? Is this like something that's been going on in the last 50 years? Or is this as ancient as real estate in general? Well, property rights and the derivatives of property rights are always being developed as we get more creative. But the the concept of there being multiple layers of property rights has been around for, for well over a century at least. Um, I mean, I, I really don't know how far it goes back, but... Start from the, the 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 basic philosophy of of 
what it means to own a piece of property. If you have pure ownership, there are definite there are layers, uh, uh, different types of ownership. The purest form of ownership is called fee. Um, fee simple absolute is a it's a it's an old English common law term. And fee simple absolute if, means that if I define on the surface of the land a description, describe the, the boundaries of a piece of property, that with that within that property, I own everything from the center of the earth, this is theoretical, from the center of the earth extending outward into the atmosphere until you reach space, that I control those rights. Now, those rights have to be enshrined by the government and protected by a government. Uh, but that is theoretically the, the base that we begin from. And from that, we can start selling off different aspects of those rights. So I, in the late 1800s, when, we, when the Rockefeller started, the, when the oil booms began, they came in and said, we don't, we don't need your surface rights. We don't want to farm the property. We want what's underneath the dirt. So they sold off the mineral rights. So it may not be oil. Uh, down south of St. Louis, it, it, we have our um, lots of mining rights for lead, for instance. Um, iron or mineral, we call that mineral rights, subsurface rights. But you can break up the subsurface rights to say it's just the right to, to extract the oil, just the right to extract the iron, whatever the case may be. But we can be very specific on what that right is. Those rights can be perpetual and last forever, or they can be terminated. It's all subject to a written agreement. That's recorded and enshrined in the land records. And then what's next after fee simple? So you have fee simple and then you have the mineral rights. What else? What other ways could somebody own? There's a, a leasehold um, is a common form of ownership, uh, certainly in the, in the United Kingdom, but in parts of this country, Maryland is one where uh, somebody says, I own this property, but I'm going to lease it to you. Everybody's familiar with a lease, right? You lease an apartment. It's the same concept, but I will do it for a longer period of time. Uh, in, in England, it's oftentimes a 499-year land lease that the, that the crown, the, the royal family that owns most of the real estate, gives. And then you have the, the full rights to use that real estate and do everything you need to over that 499-year period or the 99-year period or 20-year period. But we can differentiate that. So in commercial property, we see this a lot. Some, uh, Walmart wants to come in and Put, build a store. They don't want to pay the full price of the real estate because they know the markets change and 30 years from now, they may not want to store where that property is. And they also understand when they put up a building that the, there's a life cycle of that on building. that building. Yeah, particularly right? a Walmart a building. A Walmart. Yeah. So they say our buildings are good for 20 years. We'll sign a 20-year lease, put up our building. And at the end of that 20 years, you get the building and the land back as the property owner and we relinquish the, our rights to the property. And Walmart's okay with it because they've depreciated the cost of that building, uh, the land, uh, the, the land value they've got out of that property over the twenty years, and they can renew, and rebuild, or they move on down the road, as they usually do. I, it's funny to think about those um, leases or anything going for twenty years or a hundred years, because you put something in twenty years, you can imagine, but it's pretty hard to imagine how the world will look twenty years from now. But you get a hundred years out on a lease. And at least when you're signing it, it feels like forever, I'm sure. Sure. And, and it oftentimes is. But you see that, um, you know, older, old money type families that have owned this property, they want to make, make sure it stays in their family and that they maintain some control over it for that period of time. So it is a multiple generation 
uh, trans generational transaction that they consider. So you have a couple of kids. I have two kids. You have two kids, and how old are they? Ten and twelve. So. 10 and 12 year old kids have a definite perception of what they own, what is theirs versus what's their brothers or what's, you know, the sure. neighborhood kids. When you watch them and you're seeing them interpret what they what they own, what are you kind of what strikes you as somebody that knows so much about property? It's an interesting question. <laughs> One I I mean I've certainly never considered it. Um well, I'm, one of one of my thoughts, the reason I have this is my nephews are very young, right? Like, and and so I see them playing, and I see them recognize I want this, and 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 some of the things that they want are theirs, and they don't, they feel like I have the ability to share this or not share this. It seems, um, it doesn't seem cultural. It seems almost like it's embedded into our DNA because nobody taught. Maybe somebody taught them that, but it's. You know, I don't know. That's a, that, a great philosophical question. Is it embedded in our DNA? The concept of private property rights is not universal uh, in the world. You know, with my kids, they, they, they certainly confuse ownership on, hey, this is my house. Uh, no, it's not your house. It's your mom and dad's house. Uh, but they're very certain of the things that they own when they get a gift card or they use their money to go buy whatever thing that they buy. And I, they definitely differentiate between that, but they don't quite grasp that concept of that what's my mom and dad's is not also theirs. When I was growing up, when um, I'm in the middle of seven kids, so my parents had this thing, you know, for Christmas, you would get gifts. And we had a rule that for 24 hours, you didn't have to share. Now, to me, that made all the sense in the world, right? But I didn't realize that essentially... That gift was yours for about 24 hours and then it became community <laughs> property. That's funny. That's an interesting concept, but it gave you it gave you that whole the feeling of this is mine. This yeah, is and then you were still responsible for it. So if that toy is left out or whatever, but you could no longer assert your like you seeing some other kid play with it and then decide I want it now didn't matter. Didn't matter. After 24 hours, it was communal property. So my question that I'll kick back to you on that, did, did it change the way that toys were cared for and kept and once it became community property versus something that was your own? Yeah. I mean, so in my family, if you were neglectful of your toys, uh, my parents just threw them out. They, they had no... So it became very much like, well, this is one way to get rid of a toy I don't care about. But if you really did care about that toy, you definitely preserved it, put it away, made sure right. it was, you know, away from everybody else. And I think that that gets at the idea of the true value of what private property rights are versus communal property rights. When something is private, when something you own it and it is yours, you take better care of it. Yeah, 100%. If it belongs to, to everybody, what incentive do you have to improve that property? To, to, to maintain it, to take care of it. Now, we, we do certainly have some with parks, but we, rec we have governments that we give our taxes to with the expectation they're going to maintain that. Um, and yeah, I'm going to get philosophical again on this idea of private property versus communal property. We have a country that has enshrined private property rights, and that in many ways is at the, the root of all capitalism. Um, the idea that if 
I put my hard effort, my, my labor, my efforts, my, my thoughts into improving a piece of property, whether it's a, a piece of dirt or it's uh, some sticks and I'm, I'm making a house or building a car, that I am entitled to the rights of that prop, what that property is going to produce after that. And in other parts of the world that don't have those rights, you don't see that same level of development. Because if I spend all this time cleaning up this piece of property and building a house, the government may take it from me. So I do not get the benefit of my labor going into it. There's an economist uh, from Peru called Hernando de Soto who wrote a book 20 years ago or so called The Mystery of Capital. And coming from Peru, he, he his basic premise is why is it that we get these Western educated people when we're redoing a government? You know. The, Peru has rewritten its constitution several times and all these third world countries that are constantly re- redoing their, their constitutions. And they're always trying to copy in, in a Western style government, whether it's parliamentary style from, from the UK or it's an American style republic. But why, why when they put that government in, why doesn't it get the same results that is coming out of the, U- the US, the UK, Germany, wh- wherever the case may be? And one of the things he talked about was just this enshrinement of private property rights in our culture we just inherently get that that toy is is mine it is mine and not yours um and it it comes down to does the does the it's part of our culture but does the government also back up back up that private property right when governments really enshrine and, and protect private property rights it allows the individuals to then work to improve their property to use that property to develop and produce more and more goods and things and services. Uh, and beyond that, the number one source of uh, financing of small business in the world is the equity in somebody in your own home. You go to a bank and say, I'm going to start my uh, factory. I'm going to start knitting sweaters and selling them and I need money to, to buy my sewing machines and everything else. If I have title to my property, if I have the private property rights that are enshrined, I can then mortgage that property to suck out that hidden equity, get money from the bank, invest in a business, create jobs, spur the economy forward. And all that comes back down to that, is it my property or is it everybody's property? If it's everybody's property, I can't suck out the capital that's hidden inside that. I'm totally with you. I I had a, a guy that kind of looked in on me at Monsanto and he was from Latin America and he'd worked his way up and he said, well, when I got done with college, I went to graduate school, which was in effect um, a, a sort of educational experiment that the U.S. had built two schools in Colombia. One was economics and one was law. And they were like, if you want to reshape a company or a country, you have to first have a fundamental understanding of prices, supply and demand, what is ownership, and then and then law. You have to have like, how are we going to met out the differences there? And this sent me on a rabbit hole of of looking into this in a, in a really deep way, which is probably why I'm so excited to talk with you, is that I came to the realization that. Almost all of the Western religions, so Christianity, Judaism, and and even Islam, the very, very beginning tenets of those religions are ownership. I mean, the very first story of the Bible, of, of it, when they're describing Adam and Eve, naming things and giving dominion over them and who, what yeah. is yours, it's so fundamental because without an understanding of what you own and what I own, then then the only way you can met it out is force. 
Yeah, so, that's true. I, th- that's why I think that this concept of title and ownership is so interesting and particular with you widening the lens out to being basically i mean that is maybe not the it's probably the primary square one of what a government is is deciding what is private what is able to be private property and then how do you defend those rights of people that's certainly the the was one of the you know the founding principles of this country uh, I mean, I, th- I don't know if it's a myth or I, I don't know if I've studied it in depth, but, you know, it, it is said that the original uh, preamble of the declaration was to life, liberty, to protect life, liberty and property. Yeah. And it was later amended by the powers to be life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, but I think that and I know this is a really controversial opinion now, but when I've heard people describe why was it that landowners uh, had the right to vote. And I'm certain that it was done to, to tilt the scales to make it so the people that were in power stayed in power. However, the philosophy when you go back and read about it is to your point, it was saying these are people that are continuing to build on what they have. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're the ones that have the best interest in making sure that the government is set up such that they can continue to build. Right. And it goes to that. And with that private property, we are constantly improving. I can sell it off, give it to somebody else who is going to benefit by the fruits of their labor. I speak with uh, farmers all over the US and Canada, sometimes over in Europe. And one of the things that I'm coming to the realization of is a fundamental difference between people that are farmers, people working the land, and not all farmers own the land, but, but a significant portion of them are, and people living in the city, is that people living in the city many of them have no concept of actually owning land. They they genuinely don't understand what it means. And so not only can they not picture what is an acre, let alone 2,000 acres, the concept of having a physical place that you own as something that has value, it just it's not a part of their day-to-day culture. There, there's a movement I've been reading uh, even from, from some fairly, you know, uh, freedom-loving, capitalistic economists suggesting that perhaps home ownership is not uh, the great thing it should be that we've been sold throughout these years because home ownership subsidized, going to your point that uh, more and more people are moving into apartments and maybe that's not the worst thing in the world that we do segregate this concept that own things, but maybe real estate is not the thing you need to own because there are lots of different forms of ownership and ways to invest your own capital. Wow. Uh, it, it's a, Do you think that's as a result of how badly the bubble ended up uh, getting and exploding? And It's part of it. Um, part of it is we, we have development laws that have really restricted new development, new home ownership that have pushed the prices of new homes out of the range of new uh, of, of millennials, new home buyers. Uh, the statistic that was used and the story I read about this was I, th- I think in let's say 1990 at the height of the baby boomer um, when they were at their peak sort of home ownership that people that were 35 and under owned roughly a third of the real estate in the United States. A third of the value of the real estate in the United States. Say that statistic again. That's shocking. People that were 35 and younger, maybe it's 40 and younger, but in that in that the younger demographic owned about a third of the real estate. Oh my God, that can't possibly be the number now. And today it is something like four to five percent. Yeah. Wow. And that's that's you you have we've had a grow, you know, in 1990, planning and zoning was just getting started in, in at least our part of the world. It was more established in other places. 
Um, but now with concerns about environmentalism, things that are all certainly can be very valid claims, we have restricted development so much so that it's just increased. We've limited the supply of real estate. Consequently, the prices of real estate have gone up. And so if it's if you live on the West Coast in San Francisco, Seattle, uh, trying to in your first time home buyer, your salaries, you know, first average people out of college are not making six enough figures. to buy a and they a can't buy 1. a half million, million dollar yeah, right. you know condo. I, I think that uh, one of the great mistakes in the Western education. And it was true of me until I got to college. I mean, I had economics classes in high school, but I didn't really have an understanding of economics until I got to college. And when you when you first I don't know if you had this feeling, but when I first saw supply and demand cross and then have that be price and then you start learning like, okay, what happens if you bump up supply? What happens if you lower demand without that? It seems as though things like prices and value come from, you know, some higher order, some, you know, the people in charge. And it's only when you have that sense of like, oh, wow, that you want to be really careful with this graph. You don't want to break it. Um, But I think, did you have that same kind of profound experience? Yes, absolutely. Economics always seemed like this just completely abstract science full of numbers and, and, you know, guys that sat in closets and all they did was crunch numbers all day. And there was the profound epiphany for me with economics is not that it was the study of money and flow, but it was really the study of human interaction. Yeah, that's right. It's most basic form. It is human behaviors intersecting and how uh, how they behave when those things accept. And because the supply and demand is, is really just the, the action of a human's perception of, of what that is. Oh, that's an interesting take on that. I hadn't really thought about. I mean, demand is absolutely subjective, right? Yeah, that's right. And and extent. what people want. And then you get into some I, I don't know uh, if you've wa- followed Peter Thiel at all. Mm-mm. So Peter Thiel is the one of the guys that started PayPal, so he and Elon Musk and then he became a venture capitalist and he talks about um a philosopher economist named René Girard who is fascinating because they end up talking about why does demand end up uh, compounding on itself? And it's because human beings are not actually, we don't know what we want. And we're really oriented in this kind of tribal concept of, it's better for me to want what you want, because like, if you want it, you probably have some reason for it. And so therefore I can get it and then we can exchange it. So the whole concept is that demand, there is no such thing as the thing we ought to demand. It is only in our minds and it really most demand comes from me being like, oh, John likes it over there. I, I must want that too. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fascinating, but I I agree with it. That's a, a great concept. He's also the same guy that uh, really talks about uh, scapegoating and, and uh, these other concepts, which, you know, you had brought up environmental causes and, and environmental challenges. I think that this concept of... Uh, I don't really know where I'm going with this exactly, other than to say that climate change and animal rights and um, just these ideas that are compounding how we think about things is all really an effort to change the supply and demand curve. It it certainly has the effect. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's not designed. It certainly has the effect. I don't know if it's it's always designed to do that, but I I think that's a little nefarious (laughs) to think that somebody is really trying to modify it. I think... 
Uh, I think a lot of those people come from a, a good place and a good heart when they set up this anti-development. We're not going to develop outside of this area. Portland years ago set up a, a ring around the city and said no development outside of this ring. So consequently, when they did that, property values behind that ring collapsed because you couldn't do anything with it, right? They killed the demand curve because there's plenty of supply, but there's no demand because you couldn't do anything with it. So what do you think about concepts like uh, minimum wage? Uh, I think a minimum wage is a unrealistic floor that has a it's a job killing effect. Um, you know, we have certain laws that exist that maybe don't make pure economic sense. And minimum wage is one of those things. But maybe from a social s standpoint, they do make sense. Uh, so long as you understand that, you know, if you're setting a minimum wage or, or raising the, to a livable wage of $15 an hour, that it's above what that job is worth, what people are willing to do it, uh, that it's going to have the effect of changing the way a business goes about doing things. And McDonald's is going to automate more and more tasks if it has to pay. Yeah, you've just set a price for for how how much do, how how efficient does that robot have to be? And right. if you make it at $15 an hour, then that robot only has to be $14.99 worth an hour. Exactly. And I ultimately I come down to the belief of voluntary interaction. If you and I agree to do something, then who is anybody else to say that that is wrong? If we both did it without any sort of, uh, there's no force involved, there's no duress involved in that that agreement. If we agree to do something, and I agree to work for you for a dollar an hour, because maybe I just enjoy flipping burgers. Maybe I'm retired, and maybe all I want to, I don't need money. All I want to do is come in every day and flip a burger or whatever you want to do. Why can't I do that? And if we have minimum wage, then you eliminate some of those jobs that people used to do. Well, that's exactly what happens in something like the construction industry. And I, when I went, I was 16 years old to go get a job doing construction. And I wasn't worth, I don't know what minimum wage at that time was, but I wasn't worth $5 an hour, right? Like right. they had to spend more time teaching me how to do things than I was offering a value to the company. But if you push that up too high then you don't have the ability for somebody to say i'm going to take a chance on you i'm going to i'm going to invest in you and you're going to invest in yourself with sweat equity you you essentially wipe out the the ability for somebody to put to 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 create future value by learning now yeah and um, you know obviously there's that effect of you know, we, we have this movement in the country that whether it's pro-immigration, anti-immigration, but it's all rooted in this concept of minimum wage, right? These immigrants come in and they're w willing to work for far less. Right. And they're willing – they're voluntarily willing to do that. And that undercuts – in certain people's minds, it's undercutting their their own earnings potential because they've increased the supply of labor. Uh, but at the same time, this country is built on the backs of immigrants who come in, who, who shoehorn their way into this country with jobs like that. And they have kids that become doctors and, and, and farmers and whatever whatever they're going to do. But that's, that's always propelled our growth uh, by doing that. And I think you're, if you cut out minimum wage and we start killing jobs, then we're going to cut out what has been the lifeblood of our of our progress. I worked for a paving company in college and that was one of the great learning experiences for me on a whole bunch of levels. But 
what you're calling to mind is uh, I, w- I worked with this totally Latino crew. They were from Mexico and Guatemala and and they all talked about the willingness for either themselves or the person that they were bringing in to work for way less. They just didn't want to have a bunch of their friends and family members unemployed. They're like, if if he's unemployed, he's going to go drink. He's going to go do X, Y, Z. We know that if he shows up to work, He's staying out of trouble. He's building. He's doing stuff. And I remember being almost shocked by this because I was in college. It was, you know, pre-economics, understanding supply and demand and being like, yeah, but why would you accept working for less? And they're like, we have a whole bunch of reasons why we want people to work. It is not just it is not as simple as what kind of cash am I getting back out of this deal? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. And so your voluntary interaction, the concept for government. I've, I feel this exact same pull. I am p- probably um, more wary of the government than the average person. But you live in a weird space here because you recognize that all of these property rights and all of these things, they come down to what does the government record? How is the government going to handle this? So where do you f- fall on how s- strong or weak uh, you should have a government? Because the stronger they are, the more they can interfere with voluntary interaction. That's true. Well, we need a system of rules that we can all agree upon and live by the basic rule of law that that does govern that interaction, the private property rights. Because without that basic rule of law to protect private property rights and to protect my personal being. So we, we, we are living in a just pure anarchy where the strongest guy wins. Whoever has the most guns or the biggest guy can take what he wants. So we do. So my purpose, idea of government is to protect my protect me from harm and my body, my and our our, our our individual rights from harm, and to protect our property from being theft or being damaged, destroyed. And those those are the two basic concepts. And anything, and, and we set up a system of laws to, to protect those things, and then we follow those laws. Right. And then the more that you add into that outside of that core, they may be for good reasons, but you have to understand that you're every time you add something in, you're creating friction between two people to be able to have voluntary interactions. Correct. If it doesn't if it doesn't harm somebody or harm anybody else, then there should be no, no reason you can't do it. Was this a philosophy instilled in you by your father? I mean, you, you talked about he was into property. He kind of knew these. Was this something you grew up knowing? My father uh, did a pretty good job of hiding his own philosophy. He didn't preach or, or share what his beliefs were. Of course, growing up with you know around your mother and father, you still observe. We learn by imitation, so it was certainly a, a aspect of the way he grew up. It was a bootstrap, do it yourself. Don't expect anybody else to help you out along the way. He grew up relatively poor in the, in the sticks in, in Jefferson County, and uh, everything that he earned, he 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 did on his own without help from others. And so that was the same value that, that he instilled in me. And then when, when he was, uh, got into his forties and had a little more freedom to interact politically, he, he was active in, in liber- basic libertarian concepts. And, uh, that, that certainly helped mold my own beliefs. And then the more I studied in college and reading philosophy of John Locke and, uh, or Ayn Rand or, um, how old were Candy. you when you encountered Ayn Rand? I think I was a senior in high school. Oh, man. Gosh, I wish I would have done that. I mean, I had the basic idea, but I didn't read that book till I was 30. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's one of those interesting books that 
the philosophy is there. College professors hate it, so they're never going to push it. It's not it's not a philosophy that that they even accept as a valid philosophy, which is fascinating that they don't. Can, what you don't realize if you haven't read that book is how pervasive it is in our culture. And it wasn't written that long ago, right? We right. can go and find videos of Ayn Rand talking, and but but it is everywhere. It's like all of a sudden, and it and it's not just like one of those. Oh, I went out and bought a red car, so now I see red cars everywhere. It like the philosophy Ragnar Daniskul and and uh, the, the the archetypal characters they're everywhere. They absolutely are. Uh, it, and. People read it. It's it's on Reader's Choice Awards. It's you know Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are two of the top five books chosen by readers. I think it's because it has, it reflects a part of of the the economy that you're not naturally predisposed to, right? It it exists and it and and granted, a lot of her characters are straw men and they're like you know <laughs> wildly unsympathetic to yeah. any other, but. It reflects light onto things that we ordinarily don't let ourselves say. Like, you know, we don't talk about lazy people in society. That's taboo in our culture to be like, there are lazy people. That book lays it out. There are lazy people. There are takers. There are people that want um, to slow down progress. Like, and you don't hear that talked about. And at least I didn't in my college. No, I mean, one of my favorite passages in either of those books is the the point um, Francisco Dancania says, uh, he overhears somebody say money is the root of all evil, and he turns and says, "Yes, but have you ever asked what is the root of all money?" Breaking it down, and that's not something that we talk about. And he goes on to talk about money is really just an ex- is, is a form of exchange that was created to represent man's labor, a woman's labor, a person. In in the days before there was a true currency, any form of money, right? It was all barter and trade. I'll I'll plow the field for you if if you will sow my uh you know make my clothes. Money allowed for that good to be more transferable between just two people. Now I could extend that to a, a greater civilization. And he talked about that. And there, we, we were trained in the idea of money is the root of all evil. But that is such a concept that is really the opposite. It's the root of all that is. The root of money is the root of all that made society great and civilization grow to the heights where we are today. I'm 100% with you. And we like money is an entirely philosophical concept, right? It, it is, it doesn't matter how real it feels and how much it buys. It actually is a philosophical concept. But once you've tapped into that and you kind of look around, you now all of a sudden can say, well, there's a reason that person gets paid more for that work. And it's because there's less people that can do that or there's more demand. But until you actually sit down and think about it, I, I remember the 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 biggest economics lesson I ever received was a children's book called The Big Book of Money. I've went to I've I've, I've looked around trying to find this as many times as I can. I can't find it, but it was this giant book of a dog. I just remember him like explaining how does currency work. I was maybe eighteen years old when I read it, but it wasn't until somebody was like, "This doesn't even represent gold. It represents." What is somebody else willing to do work-wise in exchange for that? Yeah. And and what were you willing to do to get that? And how does it all work together? That's great. And that's an education that we don't really put on our on our children and, and don't teach them. I think it's it feels that's almost like uh, we have like a guilty con- conscience or something about it. There's some sort of shame associated with money. You know, to your point of people saying it's the root of all evil – 
I mean, it's part of it's part. Of, you brought up Western, you know, Western religion, saying go back to the Bible and Jesus throwing out the moneylenders, and and that was it was a very negative thing. And I think that we've created systems and governments that have helped the people who have money keep their money artificially. Um, so we've created systems that that have made it more unfair. And I'm not. I can't highlight any of those systems off the top of my head. But minimum wage, for instance. I mean, just the very act of of being able to hire an accountant, right? Like once you have enough wealth up, built up that you can hire an accountant. Now all of a sudden you play in a different game, and and doesn't even have to be that sophisticated. But it's understanding how do these taxes work? What am I allowed to write off? What is a write off? And then once that gets going, and that's not necessarily a trick that we set up. But once you get involved in that, then all of a sudden you realize there are weird tax credits. There are things available to people that unless you know where it is in the book, yeah. you can't get to it. And and so there is where it's a hard line to draw because you don't want to penalize people and say, well, because you having an accountant gives you an advantage, therefore you can't have one or everyone should have to have one because that's not right. But you get deeper into the thing and you start saying that there are things that are slanted in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on uh, how much money is being printed in the last few years? <laughs> I think we're in a dangerous, uh, dangerous place. And, but it, the, the interesting thing is that it's a global phenomenon. And the idea of currency is just an idea. I don't think has been explored. It, it, I mean, at least in the economics that I've read, the mainstream economists do believe in printing money to a degree, but they all know what that happens to monetary policy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to collapse at some point in time. But we haven't ever printed money all over the world. In at, this, at, in and, and at a speed like we're printing now. It's, 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 it's crazy. Um, and it, it seems as a system that is eventually going to collapse. But as long as we believe in that system, it won't collapse. And that's, that seems to be where we're headed. And I, I, don't, I can't quite grasp where where that where that is i have recently been uh deep diving into things like the bronze age collapse and and i'm not doing doomsday or thing i just didn't even know that there was a a whole series of of societies that just fell around the bronze age and there were these sea people that came and burned all their property but the thought that comes up is they went a really long time before they collapsed and the problems that ended up showing up that probably led to their collapse it didn't happen overnight so in one way i wonder if this inflation thing is something like well we just put that off for a hundred years and it's not going to hurt us now it'll hurt us a hundred years from now but then the line uh the sins of the father will be visited upon the son that's what that that brings to mind that's certainly going to happen but we keep kicking that can and Propping it up as much as we're printing money, we should have inflation at three or four times the rate it is today. Why don't we? I, and nobody's really been able to explain that to me. The best that I can come up with is the, in many of the staple areas that we have, the technology has kept pace with the inflation. So, for example, the amount of money that you spend on food is actually going down, but that's because food production has become so much more efficient. That it's that it's beaten those out. You know, you can look at other parts of the world where I I think that the that um, inflation gets soaked up in certain parts of our economy. The other day, somebody pointed out healthcare, but I think the student loan debt, I think the price of college is where a ton of inflation is getting soaked up. It appears to me 
uh, and then you, you might have a really interesting take on this land prices when even when you had the collapse of the market the land didn't get didn't get any cheaper so do you think inflation is getting soaked up in land prices no i don't i don't i mean land didn't get cheaper but it didn't get sold oh it didn't move fair point fair touche <laughs> so I, as an example i bought a bunch of land in in 2007 uh right before the collapse and we just we couldn't do anything with it but we just sat on it. Okay. Because we knew the prices would come back eventually. And so I mentioned student loans. Where? What do you think about the student loan? Is it really a crisis? Like, so people kind of, everybody agrees that it's a problem. Where do you think the problem began and what would you do to, to how big of a deal is it? I, I, I agree that it's a problem. Uh, I think I think it needs to be included in the bankruptcy laws, you should be able to declare Amen. bankruptcy. Amen. See, uh, somebody said, you know, that used to be the only two inevitable things in life were death and taxes. Well, you can avoid taxes now, but you can't avoid student loan debt. So they, <laughs> that was the change. It's, it's death and student loan debt. And we've, we, I, it's, it's been well talked, you know, talked about and, uh, that we as a society have said every, Every child needs to go to college, which is absolutely not true. I'm sure you went to college with some some folks who are like, you shouldn't be in college. Yeah, and <laughs> your, when your I went, highest and best use in life is not going to be in a, as an accountant. Right. Uh, it may be being a top level, you know, auto mechanic, which you have to be highly educated in that specific field, right, to to be a good mechanic today. Where I saw that really show up was when I got on the ship as a as a deckhand, and I and I began to realize you could make an entire career of being a sailor, of, of working in this way, of working on ships and having, but almost everybody that worked on the ship went to college and was there because they were paying off student loan debt and it was the job that they could get. Yeah. And it, it, I, to me, the, the danger that I see with the student loan debt is uh, populism run amok, right? You cannot have a society where you told a bunch of people that were ambitious and excited and they think they have dreams that they're going to accomplish and then the debt that they take on doesn't work out. They become very open to joining mass movements. And those mass movements get burning and you can't slow them down. So to me, the student loan debt, even if you're like, you as an individual should be responsible for your own debt. You know, you took it on. You should pay for it. The problem is that you get enough of those people together that have all made irresponsible decisions. And there's no way for them to clear it off the books. They're gonna push back somehow. Yeah, and, and let's 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 be honest. They're making those ir- ir- irresponsible decisions when they're 17 years right. old. Right. They don't understand it, and and we talked about financial education not understanding it. You know, what? Where is that conversation? Where is the responsibility of the universities to say how ca- how can a university in good faith sell somebody a, a degree that the earnings potential of that degree will not pay off the cost of that degree? How can they, in good faith, sell that to somebody without opening their eyes and say, "You want to, you want a degree, you want to become a teacher? That's a great and noble profession. But if you're going to school at Washington University and you're going to pay fifty thousand dollars a year for that, you're never going to pay off your debt. Right. So if you can't afford to pay this, you shouldn't take a loan for it. Um, and then you have a real challenge, right? Like I have. Uh, uh, several good friends that went to the Brown School, which is the social work school at Wash U. Yeah. It's supposed to be one of the great social working you know programs exactly. in the country. It doesn't matter how good the education is if 
when you walk out of there, you're going to maybe make $45,000, $50,000 a year and you're going to top out at $65,000 a year, $70,000. And you just took on $150,000 worth of loans. You're never getting out of that. Right. And I don't, I mean, the, the, the interesting, I heard a Princeton economist the other day talking about if you wonder why we build these giant uh, dormitories and we put in, you know, these elite, it's because if we don't, they'll go to Yale. They won't go to Princeton. And then, so you can be mad at us, but we're just fulfilling a market need. But it's not good. But we made the, I mean, that's a, that's a huge issue in and of itself, too, that I want to talk about if we can. Yeah, man. Yeah. But the, um, you know, we made the availability of, of student loans, of government student loans, was available to anybody. Right. And who figured out market-wise how to capture that was universities. So, right. all right, we will help you get these loans because we want the money. And once you made so it the so they could system became cyclical. And then they, they start, oh, come to our university, look at our rec center, look at this the, the, the amenities we have in our dorms. And now you've created this entire generation who's already grew up with getting everything, thinking the world was their oyster. Uh, that they were the best, that they could do anything they wanted. And now they've gone to college and they had all these amenities and they've got to come up. They've got student loan debt. They've got to learn how to live in, in relative poverty. And we're in college. They didn't. You know, I, I wonder today, like how, how many of these kids know what it's like to skimp and scrounge and eat, live on ramen noodles for, you know, for was that your college time. experience to an extent? Yeah, mine was. To an extent. Mine I was real. I mean, I spent way too much on booze. But, absolutely. But I was, We had priorities. It's, yeah, I was fortunate. <laughs> if there weren't Jimmy John's, if that restaurant had not come into existence, that was the only way I got vitamin C was through the tomatoes. I'd had scurvy <laughs> for sure. I was so poor. That's right. But I mean, like, you know, communal showers, do those exist in dorms anymore? I don't know. Do they? I don't know. That's interesting. It's been so long. The the when you, they declared that you could no longer go bankrupt, what other market do is there any other market we do that in? No. Because a bubble would it, it, there is no possible way for a bubble not to show up when that happens. When it's like you are a sure thing, I can garnish your wages if you'll take this out, then I'll give you whatever you want. Yep. Uh, that that's uh I'm I'm so I think we're both on the same page on that one. I What was your did you work while you were in college? I did. What'd you do? Um, I usually, you know, waited tables, bus tables. I've worked at Applebee's. Uh, I did a couple of odd things because I, I like smaller business. I I did telemarketing for three weeks. How'd that go? Well, I three was weeks. <laughs> terrible at it. I was horrible at it. I hated it. It was the worst job in the world. Uh, but I, I'm glad I, I had that experience. I um, I sold aerial photography door to door. How? My dad's uh, one of his childhood friends. This is what he did. He he used to like rent little small airplanes and he'd hang out the side and fly up and down streets and take pictures of people's houses. And this is before Google Maps. It's before so. Google Maps or any of that stuff. And he would print them off. He, and I would have nine by twelves. I'd throw them in a frame, knock on somebody's door like, hey, would you like to buy a picture of your house? And also just a tremendous experience. I'd, I think my commission was 60%. <laughs> So I started 125 bucks, and I could take it all the way down to 40 or 35 dollars. And how well did you do in that job? I mean, I did it for six months. I made a decent amount of spending money. It's good. Like there is no substitute for being in a position where you have to learn how to sell. 
There's no, there's, I had to do it when I was in Boy Scouts. That was a good first step. But then later I didn't do sales direct. So when I lived out in California, I was working at this public radio station and uh, my buddies and I were renovating an old ship, but I made almost no money at the radio station and the ship was not going to pay for years and years (laughs) and years. So I used to walk up and down on the docks asking people, do you have work? That is an experience people should go through because they would have you mend their nets or their, you know, fix things or scrape. It was the worst jobs because they were like, hey, here's this 23 year old kid. He's going to do whatever we ask him to do for whatever we're willing to pay him. Let's do it. But that's when you learn like a lot about yourself and about how hard you're willing to work and about how you better work smarter because you're never going to get out of this hole if you're just fixing people's nets all day. But yeah, and you realize that if, if I don't do it, Nobody else is going to do it for me. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah, that's right. You, you, you were out on your own doing that. That's a great experience. I think that that's one of those things that it's got, I, you know, I don't have any children, but it's got to be very, very difficult for a father to let their kid go without a net. But it's only when you don't have that net that you really figure out what am I capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that if, for me, I always knew that that net was there, but I never Never wanted to have to, to to call it in. Yeah, and you know what? I should be I should be honest. Like there was no way somebody was going to let me starve to death, right? I wasn't yeah. living in Kenya. I wasn't even in in the ghettos of the U.S. Like if I really had to, but that would have been a terrible, terrible phone call to make. Yeah, but that that brings up an interesting story, an anecdote of my college roommate, uh, Derek, who's a just a brilliant guy. Uh, has some he's I think he has some bipolar issues so he's dealt with a lot of issues through his life ups and downs uh, and a couple of years after college after uh, uh, he, had, he had attempted suicide and he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do you know he decided he was going to give up all his earthly possessions go become homeless and write about it and he had a very specific mindset. So Woo. my other college roommate, the three, the two of us kind of helped. We, we took his stuff and we would finance and we would send him money here and there. But he he hopped on a bus, went to New Haven, Connecticut, which is where Yale is. Uh, spent some several eight weeks in Yale being homeless. Went to New York City. From New York City, went to Birmingham, from Birmingham to Minneapolis. And then he lost uh, his willpower at it. But over this experience, so he would go to he would go to events at Yale. So it's all he had this very well thought out. But his his experiences were amazing. I saw him in in Manhattan uh, three or four months in to his time being homeless, and I go to meet him. I'm gonna I take him out to a bar, buy him some beer, things that he hasn't really had the ability to have. He has put on 15 pounds since he went homeless. He's, he's not, his clothes aren't very nice, but he's like, John, there is more food available to me than I, than I, than I could ever ask for. He's like, I can eat all day long. Wow. I can just bounce from food kitchen to food kitchen. Talking about how charitable we are, but also going to this idea of when you're homeless, everything's available. There, there's a lot of opportunity available to you. And most homeless in this country is he also learned where it wasn't a permanent thing. It was a, as a trans, transitional thing, right. and that's who he would run into. But um, he, he talked about the availability of clothes, availability of, of going to do day labor was an opportunity to, that most people had. 
Um, there's no starving that this country doesn't let anybody starve to death if yeah. you don't want to. I think that the the real challenge is getting from that point to where you're not struggling all the time. Like when I was living out in Northern California, I, I cannot I cannot believe I did this, but I uh, knew that my brakes uh, had a had like a leak in the fluid. And I was like, if I can go another two weeks without getting this fixed, then I'll have a paycheck and I won't, you know, that's what I did. I'm driving through Mendocino, California. The roads are like giant S's and Q's and all uh-huh. kinds of, and I'm driving hoping that the brake fluid doesn't run out in my car. Yeah. And when you're poor, your ability to transcend those things, like I think time, what you don't have in money you have to make up for in time, and that that's the biggest challenge. So, it, it I can appreciate the you can survive being homeless, but getting out of that out. trough, I, I mean, I I'm sure I would do it if I had to, but I sure don't want to. That's absolutely that, that's a great point. That is a great point. How do you get out of that? Um, and that's I mean, you described so many different scenarios that that describes health insurance for people who can't afford health insurance until their next they get a job yeah and you think about the time that you're spending putting into i'm going to fix my own brakes or i'm going to replace my own car battery or whatever what you don't realize is what the time that when you're young at least i did the time that you're putting to doing that somebody else is putting meeting with their accountant to figure out where the tax credits are and how to how to i'm not saying there's anything wrong with people doing this it's it my only case is when you're down at the bottom, time is against you because you 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 can't buy your way out of the problems. That's true. That's entirely true. And and debt's more expensive. Borrowing money is more expensive. You know, buying a house. The poorer you are, the harder you're going to get a higher interest rate. Uh, it is it is far more expensive to exist in many ways when you're poor than it is when you're more wealthy. So we've talked about student loans, inflation, being at the bottom and homelessness. What do you see that's good in the world right now? What What's important to you that you, you're looking around and saying, hey, this is important for us to remember? <laughs> Let's see. That's... I'm nervous about the world. <laughs> Are you? Yeah, I, I, I see that too much of it is there's it's it's so self. The world has has become so self centered, and what's in it for me versus what's in it for us, and we talk about me us versus them way too often rather than. Do you than, feel like that's we. different than the past? Do you feel like we're more self centered than in the past? Oh, absolutely, I absolutely do, and uh, that's that's when I talk about the anti development. We, you know, we talk about NIMBYs in the business, not my backyard type behavior, which is that self-centered. I, I want a new car wash, but I don't put it in my backyard, put it over elsewhere. Um, you know, we, we want to use oil, we want to use energy, but we don't want an oil pipeline running through our country. Uh, and it's this inability to see the big picture on how we all need these things to get along. Yeah, I uh, so I, I kind of made reference to it before, but the the podcast has a book club. And um, in the book club this month in March or February, we're reading a book called The True Believer, which is a book on how do mass movements get going. It was written by this guy that was a longshoreman, one of those guys that like picked up cargo and carried it on and off ships. And the the thing that scares me about today is what I'm reading in that book, where what you have are a lot of people that had dreams. They, they were really excited about it. They didn't manifest. And so they look around for other people to say, what do you guys think we should do instead? And if you don't have a self-worth, 
it's very easy for you to say, well, I'm going to discard myself, my individuation, and I'm going to join this larger group. And whatever cause they have taken on, I will take that on too. But you become, you become like a syncophant. Like you, you're just repeating what somebody else is saying. And I'm not sure if it's a function of the times that we're in or the internet age or whatever, but that is my greatest fear. My greatest fear right now are mass movements because once they get going, we've seen many, many examples of them going badly. And so once that starts to burn, there's no way out of it. That's right. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of history repeating itself because I, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Ernest Hemingway and I, and I, so I like to read his stuff and his stuff, you know, largely is World War One related and yeah. what's going on in the 19, in, from the teens to the 30s and uh, I see a lot of parallels in what was going on in the world and in, in Europe, particularly at that time and what's going on here. Tell me more. So we, so, we just, the last book club book was all quiet on the Western front, which I had never read before. Yeah. That was horrifying. I don't want that to happen again. Uh, the, for whom the bell tolls is about the Spanish civil war and the Spanish civil war was really, it came down to a fight between socialists and uh, fascists uh, and and fascists are really it's just what we I mean it's it's the, the far right it's they're they're both relatively populism movements and populism right socialism it's still a populist ideal fascism is also populist and that's what we see in this country where the far right and the far left have happened and you see this not here not just here but it's in France and it's in it's in the UK it's in every you know it's all over Um. And so you had this same rise of socialists that that were anti-religious and religion's bad, and uh, the elite are hurting the rest of us. Versus the, the nationalists who are saying, "All you socialists are trying to steal all of my things." Oh wow! And take my rights away. Okay. And it's it's rooted in in a basic religious base. And that led to the Spanish Civil War. So you fast forward to today and you've got the Bernie, the Bernie Sanders movement, which is rooted in this idea of socialism and that the system has been skewed against them from the beginning to a movement of the people who have historically been in power that are losing their rights. Their rights are being eroded against and they see that this other side is just after them and calling them names and they're fighting back. And we have that exact same battle, but it's all rooted in populism. And Spain, Spain, the the fascists won, and in Spain, and he ruled for from the 30s to the seven to the 70s. Uh, but you had that same rise with with the Nazis in Germany, uh, and the rise of the socialists in Russia. So here's the thing that scares me: if we just want to turn this into the terror episode, <laughs> John Duckworth, title title uh, company owner and terror, um, is. Uh, Many of the authoritarian dictators that really rose to power came up as as a function of disease being spread. Because when disease spreads, we interpret that as a foreign invader. It's like, not good. We want to get rid of that. And uh, like Hitler, for example, one of the things people don't realize is when he started to get regional power. So before he had taken over, before the night of the where they burned all the buildings, he had started coming in and demanding that factories clean everything up. So they they use Zyklon A to get rid of uh, different rats and, and things that were spreading disease. He planted flowers. They got rid of all these weedy areas. And suddenly people started getting 
healthier, right? And and then when they started putting Jews in the concentration camps, one of the functions of that Star of David was to say, these people don't have sanitary conditions. They are diseased. So even people that weren't di- didn't want to um, be a part of the Star of David or treating those people differently, suddenly they started seeing those people as diseased and you could bring that problem in to me. And, and so dictators rise up in those situations because they say, don't worry, give up a few of your freedoms and I will clean up this problem. And I'm not saying this is going on with coronavirus, but I watch the panic that spreads over over a disease that people have no concept of at all, but that they don't want the disease. That's the thing that scares me. Yeah. I mean, it's a disease or a fear of something that's unknown that you you don't have any, you're, that you feel powerless to stop, right? So it doesn't necessarily even have to be a, a, a medical yeah. disease, but a, a disease of, of thought, a disease of a plague of racism, a plague of, uh, you know, that concept. We have to stop this. And they, it's often, you know, even those things are often talked about like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly how we, the U.S., well, I don't know exactly, but it is in large part the way that the U.S. thought of, um, um, uh, communism spreading that it's like a disease and we got to yeah, go stamp exactly. it out and like we can go take all these actions to justify uh, getting rid of it. Maybe a better question or one that's more uh, allows you to uh, allows us to climb out of the pit yeah. of despair that we're in. <laughs> what uh, what property rights do people have in the U.S. that they may take for granted that they don't understand um, is is not is not necessarily natural. Well, um, I mean, well, a lot of what we have talked about are, are the things that we take for granted. One of which is how easy it is to buy and sell property. Oh, and this this t- title insurance is something that exists really only in the United States. It has been exported a little in Canada. Is has, has adopted it uh, really to a certain degree? And American businesses, when they buy property outside the country, they may want title insurance. But it's a concept that really only exists in in the United States. And what happens is it makes it very cheap to buy and sell a piece of property. In Europe, when you want to buy and sell a piece of property, you hire an attorney to do much of the same research we're doing, but you get no protection from it. Um, you just hope they do a good job? You just you hope that they do a good job and you're trusting in your attorney and you can sue their, your attorney if, if they do a poor job. But you're paying an att- attorney's cost a lot more than a, a, somebody at a title company who may not have gone to college. We have several of our best employees to have no college education. Good for you. Um, so... They, you know that we make it very cheap and easy to do that. The other thing we make it as, you know, a tangent to that is we make it very cheap and easy to borrow money against your property, for the same reasons. Banks have a very good system of we have a very good system of foreclosure laws. I know that sounds backwards. I'm going back negative, but without good foreclosure laws, banks aren't going to make loans. Yeah, that's true. That that gives the bank the protection that they need in order to make that loan because they know if you stop paying, they have the security of that collateral to get some of their money back. Um, so we have this very good system to move property, to facilitate the exchange of, of money and, and things that does not exist in the rest of the world. And it happened organically over time because maybe we started from this huge plot of ground that we can get back into some negative things on who owned that ground, but um, that was, it was a bootstrap generation said, I can buy this and this system, I can then turn around and sell it to you and you can take a loan out and build a factory with that, that money. So we talked about uh, the role that government plays in kind of tracking this thing, right? You go to the county courthouse because one of their jobs is if something happens with property, you register it here, 
we can we can now make sure that somebody is the final arbiter of those things. In many ways, Bitcoin was put forward, or at least the blockchain um, under the Bitcoin mm-hmm. system was said, hey, this is an alternative. It could be an alternative for, say, like Venezuela, where they don't have that kind of system. But I think the the really strong, ardent people are saying this will also protect us in the U.S. What is your take on using the blockchain to record titles? I think it's a great system, uh, but I think... It's a great system for places like Venezuela or Georgia, which did institute it across their enti- this country of Georgia, um, institute that as a way to record land titles. Because it creates – now it's independent. It's not the government that governments can get corrupt and change that stuff and change the rules. Blockchain is recording it independently and we can manage it. So from that standpoint, it is a great system for creating uh, an independent land recording or public record system. In the United States – um, and this is one of the things that protects my business in the long term. The issue that we have is our legacy of the public land record of, of 250 years of public land records in St. Louis, much less how, how old it is on the East Coast. And each system is slightly different by county. There are over 3,000 counties in this country. <laughs> and most, you know, they're, they're all generally the same, but they're not exactly the same. And if you tried to force them to standardization, it would it would break things. And, and that's yeah, that's the thing. So the, the the idea of just completely changing that, while it seems philosophically you can get to it, practically it, it can't ever happen. It's it's like eliminating the IRS overnight. There's too many vested interests that go into that 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 will, would ever prevent that from happening. That's uh, that's a very balanced and reasonable take. I think that we will see as as more countries get swallowed up by populism and these things. I think you will see more and more people try and list their property in some some sort of blockchain because it makes sense to have. So for people that don't know the way that that this works in in really simplistic terms is every 10 minutes there is a block of information that is distributed to all of these computers that are all over the world that are quote unquote mining. But one of the benefits of having that block is you can input information into it. You can store it like a file system and you can store some pretty sophisticated stuff on it. And then it is immutable. It is, it is unless something wild happens to blockchain, but, and we'll just put that off on the side and say they record it and then it is there permanently. You can't take it down. Nobody can. Yeah. Um, and so it would allow you to have protections that if you're in Venezuela and somebody goes and burns the Capitol building down, all those records are gone. Yep. That, I mean, that's absolutely the case. Uh, obviously, it still takes a government to stand behind you if somebody wants to come in and claim it. Either you're going to fight over it or you're going to go to court. Without a proper court system to defend those rights, um, it's, you're still going to have problems. But at least we've, we've created a good recording system. I agree. Man, John, this has been great. If people wanted to, uh, to talk with you about, hey, I've, I've got a title issue or I'm thinking about where do you where do your services, where, where's your area? So, so the best way to find us is, uh, on uh, you know, just go to our website, www.truetitle.com. Uh, we have offices. We're headquartered in Clayton um, with 10 offices throughout the St. Louis area, as far west as uh, O'Fallon, as far south as Farmington. Um, and we are always available to help answer questions you run into issues getting a deal closed that's where we where we thrive so so look us up on the internet reach out to us we're happy to to help
Great. Well, uh, Jared Holst uh, got us together at the Christmas party, and it took us until now to make this happen, but I am so glad it finally happened. Yeah, I've enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. All right.